Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. morning. Uh, my name is George Marshall. For anybody who doesn't know me, I think everybody should know me. Um, sorry if you were expecting Brian. Brian is, of course, on sabbatical, so you have to get me. He, he, he thankfully left me with Nahum. What was that? Yeah, so he got to do Jonah, which is all compassion and mercy and grace, and I get to do Nahum, which is all avenging, venging, wrath, avenging. Um, But that being said, this is going to be a great message. I think God has a lot to tell us from the book of Nahum. Uh, So let's start by reading it. It says, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is jealous, a jealous, an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, but the Lord will no means clear the guilty. His way is in a whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows who take re- those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Let's pray. Father, would you take this word and 
bear fruit in our lives. May we trust you more fully. May we flee the sin that entangles us. May we love one another and encourage one another and comfort one another um, as your people. God, would you be glorified um, in your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know about you, but I love the movie theater. I really do. Uh, I love the huge screen, uh, the sounds, the atmosphere. I like the popcorn. Gets in the teeth, but I like it anyway. Um, I love watching the previews. If I, if I go to the movie theater, I'm going to show up early because I want to watch the previews. That's, that's half the thing, right? Um, otherwise, I could just stay at home and watch it a month later. Um, I love the powerful visuals, the targeting of specific scenes to kind of highlight the tension, to burst it up. Um, I like the danger. Sometimes I like the choice lines between a character or two um, that call attention to who they are and what role they're going to play in the movie. Um, and it helps for this introvert that at the movie theater, nobody expects me to talk. I can be around people, but it's kind of silent. I don't have to say anything. It's a good feature. Um, I love seeing how movies begin, too. I love the, the music, whether it's the intro pieces, um, the outro pieces, the, the background music, um, the artistry and the talent uh, that goes into picking the right pieces to match the mood. Uh, I probably couldn't do that myself, but I, I appreciate what other people do. Um, and I love seeing how different movies situate you in the story, how they start and get you into the flow of the action, um, setting the stage for where the movie is going. Our passage this morning is a lot like that. Um, it's powerful. It doesn't pull any punches. It's action-packed. It holds nothing back as it paints a picture of the awful consequences of our sinful rebellion against a glorious, just, and heavenly creator. Then again, scripture often speaks in ways that make us uncomfortable. Ultimately, God speaks and acts in ways that we aren't always comfortable with. Yet he is good, and he calls us to seek refuge in that goodness. Ultimately, the book of Nahum is not meant to bring a sense of dread and terror for God's people. It's meant to be a comfort. It's meant to be a comfort for us. And with that, we're going to jump right in. Um, as we approach this morning's passage, we first confront the opening credits. Nahum is unique among the prophets, the writing prophets, um, because he has a double opening. Usually, they just kind of have one opening. This is the message from the Lord through the prophet. Uh, but he has two. First, um, he says that the message is introduced as an oracle concerning Nineveh. Um, there's a lot of meaning packed in that one word, oracle, um, that we probably will miss in English, um, starting with you know, an explanation of a vision from God. So not just, here's what happened, the raw facts, but here's the implications, an unfolding of those implications. And we're going to see that, especially in coming weeks, uh, but we'll see a little bit about that this morning. Um, the word oracle is usually translated in, in some versions as a, as a burden. It's burdensome. It has a difficult message. Um, and we certainly see that as we approach um, Nahum's oracle. And then finally, it's usually a message that's concerned with those outside of Israel. It's a message directed at or about the nations around Israel, even though, in, in this sense, it's really to Judah. This is a message to God's people even though it's about Nineveh. So 
Um, secondarily, this oracle uh, is about Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Um, and Nineveh is the capital, it's the seat of the king. Uh, now, Brian introduced Nineveh through our time in Jonah, but we need to recognize that this is a Nineveh a century later. Okay? It's after the fall of Israel, um, the northern kingdom, um, to Assyria in 722 BC. It's after the thwarted invasion of Jerusalem in 701 BC. And it's in the midst of, probably have never heard this, but Pax Assyria. You've heard of Pax Romana. Well, this is in the middle of Pax Assyria. Assyria is dominant. It's powerful, and it can bring peace, but it's a peace of subjugation, a peace of domination, a peace of cruelty where, yeah, there's peace, but it's because nobody is willing to break the status quo. Nobody's willing to, to topple Assyria, um, to go head on. So it's a very different Assyria, one more enamored with, of its own glory, uh, one that has not learned from its earlier repentance, one more emboldened to sinful idolatry, to boasting in its own power, one even more ascendant militarily. It may have been powerful before, it's way more powerful now. And it has a king who boasts dominion and authority all over the world as agent of his God, as a direct opposite to Yahweh. As we'll see shortly, Nahum's message is bigger than Nineveh. Uh, but Nineveh will be case in point. It will be example in neon lights. It's going to show us God's justice and his glory through both his vengeance and his goodness. Second, the second line says that this prophetic message is a book or scroll of the vision of Nahum. And so while Nahum's message was likely read aloud quite often, um, it has components that virtually demand for it to be read with an eye to the visual text. Um, Nahum's not just a prophet. He's not just someone who saw something and then told about it. Um, he's an artist. Uh, he's a top-notch Hebrew poet. And the oracle shows a number of impressive features that we will simply not have time to delve into. I wish we could. I would love to make this a, a, just a, a poetry symposium or compose, I don't know even what word to use there, but we just can't do that, unfortunately. Um, I'll leave that for future study, an exercise for the reader. Um, <laughs> suffice it to say, Nahum is not some hastily scribbled down record of the vision. Rather, it's a carefully crafted message intended to give comfort to Judah, and by extension, comfort to us. They face bewildering opposition to God's rule in the form of a domineering and boastful Assyria. And as a final touch to the opening credits, we have the author. It says it's one Nahum of Elkosh. And this could be a simple formula, name from place, um, just like Jeremiah of Anathoth, Jonah of Amittai, etc. While it isn't conclusive, I find it more than a little coincidental that the name Nahum shares the root for the verb to comfort, to console. And it sounds very similar to the Hebrew word nachem, which will come up in our verse 2, avenging. Similarly, Elkosh, which is not a known place name, sounds like severe God. It almost sounds like jealous God, also in verse 2. So maybe we will talk a little bit about poetry, but this suggests that the book is written by 
comfort of the severe God. So we think that as we look at Nahum the Elkoshite, or Nahum of Elkosh. Well, opening credits, check. On to the main event, the main feature. Uh, Nahum 1, verses 2 through 8, record a broken acrostic, so a, a, a poem where each successive line is a different letter of the alphabet, okay? In this case, the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, within this poem, there is carefully crafted wordplay along with sustained glorification of Yahweh, both in content and in form. And unfortunately, the form is kind of going to be a harder thing. We're going to deal more with the content. Uh, Nahum brings three elements to light as the poem advances. He, he first starts with God's righteous judgment flows out of his character and identity. God is able to defend his own glory. And then finally, the impending and unstoppable judgment of God presents us with a choice. So first, God's righteous judgment flows out of his character and identity. God's judgment is not arbitrary. Uh, it's not detached from reality or flippant. Three times, three times, Yahweh's name is repeated. Three times Yahweh, I am, is described as avenging. Nahum weaves together Exodus 20 and Exodus 34 to present God to his readers. We read in Exodus 20, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's Exodus 25. God refuses to be placed alongside idols, rivals made by hand out of the stuff he himself created. Exodus 34, uh, the great confession of Yahweh's character to Moses reads, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping fat, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. In Jonah, where Exodus 34 is also used, we see the prophet dwell on God's loving and forgiving, compassionate character because he sincerely detests that that loving and forgiving, compassionate character might be poured out on hated Nineveh. Nahum comforts Judah by reminding them that God's justice is not arbitrary. Because God is jealous for his own glory, because to him alone belongs the power and right to avenge, because he keeps wrath for his enemies, judgment for Nineveh, it's inevitable. It's going to come. God's righteous judgment flows out of his character and identity as Yahweh, as I am, as the one who is beyond it all. But as much as this book is a book concerning judgment on Nineveh and deliverance for Judah, Nahum offers us more. Judgment on Nineveh is not a one-off. Um, God's righteous judgment flows out of his character and identity now, and it will flow out of his character and identity in the future. Nahum sidelines Nineveh and in picturesque, poetic verse, declares that Yahweh will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Nahum does not just picture the defeat of Assyria and its capital as important and comforting as that is for Israel. He pictures the God who sees every rebellion against his glorious person, every sin recorded, marked, wrath kept for the day of judgment, and with no equivocation, 
He watches as God appears to judge that wayward creation. This poem reflecting on God's character and power is global in scope. It's looking to the future. It's not directed at Nineveh. Nineveh is, is there. He's in the background, but Nahum sees God coming in a final glorious judgment of all that oppose him. It winks ironically at Nineveh and Assyria, but it's really more. Since God's wrath against sin flows out of his very character, I want to encourage you to give more than just lip service to the doctrine of God's wrath. And we do. Um, too many people come to God's wrath, come to God's judgment with kind of a begrudging acceptance. We even talked about that this morning, actually, in word and prayer. Uh, the may assent to the truth about God's wrath, God's jealous guard of his own glory, but they do so with a little bit of shame. It's a dirty little secret. They could wish it different. If they had the ability, they would have God be different. They would round off his hard edges. So as we proclaim the gospel, we often avoid God's wrath. We paint the positive benefits of belief in Christ, hoping we can avoid dealing with the hard issues. As we deal with our own sin, we often cling to an optimism about ourselves as created in God's image, and, and we ignore the brokenness that asked for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Uh, Trevin Wax, in his book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, which I, I heartily suggest, get it, read it, it's, it's a great book, um, reflects on the danger of a slow slide away from faith as we attempt to offer an easier, more palatable gospel to the world. I mean, our sin makes judgment something we naturally shy away from, but without a clear presentation of God's wrath. We neutralize the force of the gospel proclamation. There's not much salvation when there isn't wrath to be saved from. What is wanted is more than mere acceptance. It's more than mere affirmation of truths. Should we settle for loving God in spite of his character and its consequences? Is it too much to ask that we actually love God because he will judge his enemies, those who have rebelled against his glorious, perfect person? In any case, God does not change. We must either love God for who he is, good, loving, just, holy, jealous, avenging, or we love an idol, a caricature, an image of ourselves in God's place. On to the second of the three elements uh, in this poem, and that is God is able to defend his own glory. Before moving much further, um, look back with me again at verses two to three. It says, the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. The classic language of being slow to anger might suggest to some that God is incapable of responding. Maybe he's jealous, maybe he's vengeful, but he doesn't have the power to adequately judge Assyria, Nineveh, or any other power arrayed against him. 
hence the slowness. He's simply waiting them out. Nahum replaces um, the Exodus 34 affirmation of God's abundance and covenant love with his great power. All this is as if to say, do not think just because God is slow to punish that he's either blind to your offense or powerless to address it. God most definitely is slow to anger, as was seen in his compassion and mercy on Nineveh in the past as we looked at Jonah. But apart from refuge in God himself, apart from security in Christ, sin will be punished. And what follows is a graphic display of that very power. God is in avenging wrath, come to judge his enemies. As he first descends to earth, his motion stirs up whirlwind and storm. The great and mighty storm clouds are just dust kicked up by his feet. Storms. Without even a word, just his approach, the sky is in disarray. And then comes his word. In his rebuke, the sea dries up. It's a reminder of his mercy and grace to Israel in the past, in the Exodus. As much as a reminder of the way this mercy and grace was experienced as crushing defeat for Egypt. But it's not just the sea. The rivers themselves dry up. Nineveh, I don't know if you know much about Nineveh, but it's surrounded by rivers. It boasts in their protection of the city. It boasts in their bounty supplying the city. It's powerless before God's rebuke. It's gone. And as if this were not enough, some of the most fruitful regions of Israel, Bashan, Carmel, are seen to simply fade at God's word. These, along with Lebanon, are now incorporated into the domain of Assyria, and they wither at his rebuke. The earth might be expected to quake at the approach of one so powerful, but the mountains, in the ancient Near East, the mountains are the very definition of stability and permanence. The mountains quake as well. The hills just melt. The earth, along with all the men and women who populate it, heave. God is not impotent. God is perfectly capable of defending his own glory against Nineveh, against Assyria, against its boastful king, and against any future enemy. Of Christ Jesus, we read, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominion or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. God sustains the universe in the person of Christ. Let him but take that sustaining authority away for just a moment, and creation breaks apart. And Nahum sees nothing less than this coming global catastrophe. Third element of this poem um, is the impending and unstoppable judgment of God presents us with a choice. As Nahum proceeds from the heavens to the earth, he settles on people. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Nahum asks in verse 6. While nature itself has no power to choose, it simply falls apart. It disintegrates as his wrath comes. Men are offered a refuge. 
a hope. In two balanced lines, Nahum offers two possibilities for men. Verse 7 reminds that God is good. He's a refuge in the day of trouble. Quite unexpectedly, to avoid the wrath of God, personal and intimate rescue by God himself is man's only hope. Verse 8 contains option 2. God's adversaries will be overcome in a flood. Again, Nineveh often picturing itself as a flood that overwhelms its adversaries. It's the overwhelmed adversary. And we sang, Psalm 130 asks that same question. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist clings to God's faithfulness to forgive, which counterintuitively for us, leads to fear, if you read the passage, leads to fear. He waits for the Lord to rescue because with him there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. And Nahum agrees, those who fear the Lord, those who find their refuge in God alone, will be delivered from God's wrath. All others are his adversaries and powerless before an inevitable coming day of trouble. If you look at me once again at verses 2 to 3, Nahum writes, The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Often when we read of God's jealousy, it's somehow related to his people. It concerns faithfulness to the covenant. But here there is no regard to a particular people or nation or tribe. God is jealous for his own glory, for his own name's sake. Nineveh, like all God's enemies, is not judged simply for their opposition to Israel and Judah. Nineveh and its king will be judged because they boasted in their own glory. Assyria's king sneered at God, thinking him a little thing, not worthy of consideration before his own might. And so God says, I'm going to consider you a lightweight, a little thing. Similarly here in verse 7, it's not all of Judah that are promised deliverance. They're not all promised deliverance from God's wrath. Only those who take refuge in him. Those who take refuge in him. As much as Nahum's oracle is a comfort for Judah, it is also a chilling warning not to presume on the covenant if their hearts are opposed to God's rule, God's good rule. Nahum, as much as Jonah, calls us to a healthy fear of the Lord. And so I ask you this morning, do you fear the Lord? Or are you merely afraid of judgment? Do you love the Lord in all his glory, or do you simply seek to avoid the consequences of your sin, the consequences of pride, of lust, of sexual sin, of anger, of theft, of selfishness and gossip, willful ambition, dishonesty, lack of care for brothers and sisters in Christ? In 1 John 4, 18, we read that perfect love casts out fear, as there's no longer the threat of punishment. But apart from Christ, there is much to fear. Romans 8.1 tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sinner, friend, would you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus? 
Would you know lasting peace, no real love? Would you know an end to fear of judgment? And brothers and sisters, be comforted. There remains no more condemnation. Jesus is your refuge. You have nothing to fear. The coming day of trouble is deliverance for you. Deliverance from suffering and trials. Deliverance from sin and death. Deliverance to the very presence of God, full of the worship of all the saints. Nahum is God's reminder to you that he is going to rout every enemy to the advance of his kingdom. So persevere in faith, knowing he's able to hold you. We move now from Nahum, uh, from God's character in the coming day of trouble, which was the main feature, to the previews. Uh, four announcements of what God is going to do that align with God's global activity and move it forward. And the first preview um, is in Nahum 1, 9 through 11. Preview 1 says, What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Nahum echoes the psalmist, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And from Psalm 46, be still, not quiet. Be still, stop your raving, stop your attack. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In this first announcement, God offers certainty that once he has avenged himself on Assyria, there will be no return for Assyria. Each of the following word pictures, entangled thorns, drunkards on drink, the stubble fully dried, they're meant to reflect the totality of what is coming. The trouble from Assyria will not come again. Nineveh will have no opportunity to rise up. There will be no like, not dead yet. None of that. It's done. Assyria is done for. Nineveh will have no opportunity to rise. God gives further, um, more reason for the severity of the judgment the surety of the judgment. It all stems back to one who plotted. A uh, counselor of Belial, it says. Um, this is not used very often, but a Belial is a, a scoundrel. It's a wicked person. It's one of very little value. Um, and he says, that's the king of Assyria. That's this king, this ruler of Nineveh, somebody who's a Belial. No value. A scoundrel dedicated to opposing God. And in this way, we're reminded, or should be reminded, of a king of Assyria, Sennacherib. I don't know if you're familiar with Sennacherib. In 701 BC, we kind of already mentioned it. Assyria, after having conquered the northern kingdom, went south. They sacked a whole bunch of fortified cities, and they moved forward in an attempt to destroy Jerusalem, to take it, and to reduce Judah to nothing. Sennacherib basically claimed, your God is nothing. All these other gods, we've conquered them. They stand in judgment of you. Once we've conquered you, your God will judge you as well. He'll be part of our pantheon. He'll be part of our glory, and you will simply suffer. And God says, you've sealed your fate. That's it. You're done for. Preview number two um, in verses 12 through 13 stands out as Nahum's first and only use 
of thus says the Lord, which is pretty uncommon for prophetic literature, but that's the case. Um, while preview number one seems directed to Assyria and Nineveh, preview number two turns its attention to Judah. So there's a constant change of, of pronouns going on here. It says, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. What becomes clear is that Assyria was used by God to punish Judah for sin already committed. Assyria is just a tool. Assyria's great power and domination and everything is just God's way of going, you've sinned, Judah, and you need to be punished for it because of my glory. Assyria thinks we're just awesome. Our gods are for us. And God is saying, eh, not really. I can't do away with you like that. Despite the seeming health and prosperity, the overall vigor of Assyria, despite the immensity of its military reach, God is ready to cut Assyria off. All the power and ease it thinks is its right can vanish overnight. And the natural consequence will be that this yoke, this bondage, this subjugation that Judah is feeling, that Judah is experiencing, it'll vanish. Judgment on Assyria is relief for Judah. It's not just God acting differently for different people. It's God saying, my actions here will have this consequence over here. That's preview two. Preview three, number three, returns to God's adversary, but this time points to a specific individual, likely Nineveh's king. The Lord has given commandment about you, it says, no more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile, lightweight. One important thing we notice in the text is the command given. It's not a typical thing for prophecy. It sounds maybe biblical, but it's not actually typical for prophecy. Prophets, as they would write and talk, they would say, this is the, the word of the Lord. But they wouldn't really talk in terms of a command given. But Nahum does, because it establishes the certainty of this happening. Nineveh, you can count on it. Take it to the bank. God's command builds even more on these prior previews, heaping up the sense that judgment is certain, that Assyria is ripe for that judgment. And beyond this certainty, the king's aspirations and claims to power and authority are going to be reduced to nothing. Um, Assyrian kings would line their tombs um, with idols and inscriptions warning people not to disturb those tombs. And that if they did, those people who had broken into the tombs and stolen stuff, they would be punished with a loss of name, a loss of seed, a loss of progeny, a loss of a future line. And to that, God says, King, you're not going to have the tomb you think you're going to have. You're going to be ashamed. You're not going to have progeny to pass on the glory of Assyria. You're going to be cut off. I don't consider it a hard task. It's just going to happen, and there's nothing you can do about it. The fourth and final preview once again returns to Judah. It says, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings 
good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you, really to invade you. He is utterly cut off. Where the first three previews look forward to what is to come, they're kind of like in advance, the perspective of this final preview is the future, looking back after Assyria is defeated. There's a sense of urgency to proclaim the victory. He, he doesn't even say it, it, in Isaiah 52.7, you have beautiful are the feet. My feet are not beautiful and they're shoes, so it doesn't matter. Um, but he says, just behold, just look at them. They're rushing. They're, they're in a hurry. That's Nahum's point. There's urgency. There's a sense of urgency to proclaim the victory because Assyria offered peace by domination, but God offers peace through his own work. He's done it. Uh, and again, what we see here will be taken up in the New Testament to speak of the coming of Christ, um, of his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, which guarantee the victory over sin and death. Uh, we have taken refuge in the Messiah, are invited to be those messengers. That's what Paul is getting at in Romans. And in response to this message of victory, Judah is called to feast. They're called to, to worship. And now we can probably talk about, you know, what it looks like to feast over the defeat of your enemies. We kind of, that, that sounds maybe negative, but I mean, what are you supposed to do when the people who are oppressing you, the people who are opposing God himself, when that is relief, when you feel relief from that affliction? God says feast. It's time to worship. It's time to give thanks. It's time to pay back your vows. So these would be things like, you're in a troubling situation, you say, God, if you will please remove my Assyria, I will throw a big celebration and have people invited to it, and I will tell them about what you've done. This is what he means. He's not just saying, okay, have a big meal. He's not just saying, okay, you better keep your vows. He's saying, use these things as opportunities to remind one another of what I've done. So now these feasts that Israel knows, these feasts that are reminding them of victory in Egypt, um, their redemption from slavery in Egypt, now will remind them, oh, I was also redeemed from Assyria. That God still won out. That God is still the victor in every one of my battles. That's the idea. What we have viewing all the announcements together is an overwhelming confidence in the downfall of Assyria. Bottom line. But again, moreover, it's the downfall of every enemy. Assyria is just an example The overwhelming defeat of Assyria, of Nineveh, of its wicked king, is exemplary. It looks forward to another day, the day of trouble that was mentioned in verse 7. God is not saying that Judah will never face conflict again. They will. If you've read the book of Jeremiah, if you've read the book of Lamentations, if you've read Kings and Chronicles, they're not done. God still has some enemies to oppose for them. But instead, Judah is on notice that God is greater than any enemy. God doesn't have an equal. He has rivals but no equals. And a day is coming when just like Nineveh, that great city was defeated, God will make a full end to all that opposes him. He will judge sin. He'll judge sinners once and for all. And the vindication of his justice, of his patience and love will overflow in praise from his people. It's Revelation, the saints gather to sing 
lest we overlook it, can I just pause and let us consider that at no point in God's outpouring of wrath, his judging of the sinful arrogance of Nineveh and its king, does he ask for Judah's help. Judah's not a part of this. Judah's a recipient. They don't do anything. Their military doesn't matter. Their king doesn't matter. Nothing. Judah is a bystander. The previews show that God can and will vindicate himself. He doesn't need us to do that. Again, Judah is the receiver of God's abundant mercy and grace. Judah is neither equipped nor called to usher in God's reign of justice and peace. God will do it. And that doesn't invite a defeatist attitude or a laxity of behavior. Israel was called into existence to be a display people. That's still their mission. There are people who would show the glory of God to watching nations. But implementing a global reign of justice is not Israel's mission. Judgment belongs to the Lord. Now, there is a spiritual war going on all around us. It's a countercultural thing to say it, even in many so-called churches. Um, but this world we are in is hostile to God and engaged in a battle to implement justice on its own terms. It's not willing to submit to God and even rejects God's involvement. As much as this passage in Nahum calls us to gaze in wonder on God, the magnificent creator and redeemer, this world system demands that we bow down to it. It offers to make man the god of his universe, all of life subservient to humanity's individual and corporate needs. It manipulates um, just as it rejects God's word. It offers freedom all the while forcing its faithful into slavery of sin through pornography, sexual perversion, murder of innocence, the rejection of all restraints, the rupture of family, and a revulsion for all authority. It claims for itself the characteristics of love, acceptance, and community, while turning those things on their heads. And the question before us is, will we remain in that system? Will we worship the creature or the creator? In Romans 1, Paul recounts how all stand as sinners without excuse before the wrath of God. And Nahum is telling us that God will one day judge the world. There's not a doubt. It's absolutely certain. But God invites us, you and me, to find our refuge in him as part of a new people, strangers and aliens who have tasted the mercy of Jesus, sanctifying presence of the Spirit. He invites us into this redeemed community and promises to conform us each to his image. He invites us to experience real justice, justice only he can bring, not this world. Uh, the other day I chanced on a video. Um, it asked the question, how do we respond to those that see a sharp distinction between the character of God in the Old Testament and that portrayed in the New Testament, especially in the person and work of Christ? Um, as we've worked through Nahum 1 this morning, maybe you've had similar questions. It was a panel video, and the commentator expressed a little bit of reticence even to ask the question. Not sure why. But Vadi, Vadi Bakum, he was one of the panelists, um, rightly pointed viewers to read all the way to the right. That's your right. Okay. Yes. All the way to the right. Jesus, God incarnate, 
redeemer and friend, seeker and savior of the lost, our advocate before the Father, this Jesus is the judge himself. In Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Jesus warns listeners that he himself will sit on his eternal throne and judge all of mankind. In 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul reminds Timothy that Jesus will return as judge of the living and the dead. No one escapes. And as Vaudi suggests, way at the right, Revelation 19.11-16 comforts the early church, much as Nahum 1.2-8 does Judah. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Just a few chapters later, at the very rightmost end of the book, Jesus reiterates the same, saying, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, God is characterized as both patient and full of grace, even as he stores up wrath for the day of judgment. And the New Testament doesn't deviate from this truth as it places Jesus before our eyes as the visible display of the invisible God. The voice of God himself warning us to flee the coming day of trouble. If we're not comfortable with this, it's not because the scriptures are not clear. It's more likely because we are comfortable. We're comfortable here. But we cannot hope to persuade a dying world to flee to Christ and away from its sinful idolatry if we are not prepared to honestly proclaim the truth as we share the good news about Jesus. A final comment, and we'll, we'll pray. Looking at Nahum 1.1, we are reminded that Nahum spoke this message concerning Nineveh. This was a Nineveh at the peak of its power. Judah is beside itself with fear. They don't know what to do. Those in charge are doing everything in their power to present a good face to Assyria. We're happy. We're well-behaved servants. We're docile. We would never oppose you. And Nahum has exposed himself as he shares this message. Nineveh won't be happy if they hear this oracle, and it's likely they never did. While some in Judah will be comforted by this message, that's his point. Many of Judah's elite are going to be quite unhappy that someone like Nahum, articulate, God-fearing, steeped in the scriptures, is speaking out in this way. Nahum is a threat to their fragile peace. He's a threat to their stability, just like Jesus was a threat to the high priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees in his day. And so then the question, are you a threat like Nahum? It's an odd thing to ask. Does your faith stand as a challenge and invitation to a lost world? 
Do your words point the way to a mighty Savior? Are you daily reorienting your life around the glorious Redeemer and Judge of all creation? Are you a comfort for God's people? A reminder and encourager to press on? But a threat to those who pay lip service to the King of Kings? A threat to those who want to have an image of godliness but ultimately ignore them in their life? Or has your faith signed a truce with the world, a pact to remain private and not challenge as it goes towards Satan? Jesus is coming again to judge and to reward. It's a joy for us and a disaster for a lost world. May he find us as a church faithful when he returns, a new community finding refuge in him alone, full of love and holiness, forgiveness, and truth. Ultimately today, be comforted in his power to save. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We know that you are good, that you are our only refuge. We thank you for Jesus who who loved us so much that he was willing to suffer life, temptation, death on a cross, the lies and deceit of men around him, the failures of his closest friends. Father, we thank you that you love us that much, that though your wrath is storing up, you would provide a way to save us, to redeem us, to restore us to fellowship with you, to restore us to fellowship with one another, something we couldn't have hoped for. God, we thank you this morning. We praise you. We ask you to make us more and more in your image. In Jesus' name, amen.